It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined by Brett Rapkin. He is the director of The Weight of Gold, which is the documentary addressing mental health challenges among Olympic athletes. You can see it right now on HBO Max. Brett, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Did you have any idea how relevant your documentary would be? My pleasure. Good morning. No, it's uh, it's excellent to talk to you. Did you have any idea that your documentary was going to be so relevant to the conversation <laughs> around this Olympics? <laughs> definitely, definitely not this relevant. But you know, it's 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 not totally surprising. I mean, given you know the statistics that that Michael Phelps and the other athletes talk about in the film, you know, Michael talks about over eighty percent of of athletes, Olympic athletes, deal with you know post Olympic depression or, or depression. Um, certainly not a shock, but the fact that it's Simone Biles, the way it's happening with her withdrawing from competition in real time, I think is just really kind of, uh, you know, thrown all of us for, for a loop. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I think people need to understand is what it might feel like to have the weight of gold. I mean, I think the title of the movie actually um, is helpful in illustrating what it may feel like to have this much pressure and this many eyes on you. You have sponsors, you have coaches, you have, you know, the institutions and federations that support your sport within the United States that, and everybody's like expecting something from you. And, you know, I'm no, I'm a nobody, but like having a lot of people expect things from you every single day, every single minute of every day, that's a lot. <laughs> and I, and I'm not a professional athlete. Can you speak to, you know, what that weight, entails like what kind of what is the weight made up of yeah I, I think that these athletes are dealing with with a tremendous amount of pressure uh, it's and it's heightened um first of all by the pandemic i mean they're in they're in a bubble olympics where there there's no friends or family allowed to, to be with them and um they're dealing with you know the ptsd or, or whatever effects of the last uh however many months that we've been in this this pandemic. Um, but, you know, to your point, I think that pressure is something we can all relate to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did, I did, I did the Anderson Cooper show last night and I was nervous all day about it because <laughs> like mm-hmm. in my, in my little corner of the world, that's like a big deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I felt the same pressure. I think pressure, stress, it's all a really relative thing. And um, it's something we can all relate to. And I think, um, part of what I'm enjoying having these conversations about, you know, this summer, um, more so than last summer when the film originally came out is how I think these athletes are all of us and, you know, they're, they're us and we're them. What was it like to get athletes to talk about mental health? Was, was it something that you had to sort of give them a permission structure to be able to do, or was it, a conversation that they were relieved to, to be able to have. Yeah, I think it was different for each of the athletes. You know, I think that um, especially once, once Michael Phelps came on as an executive producer and, 
you know, the other athletes knew that, that, that him and some of the other uh, high profile athletes were participating in the film. It got, it got somewhat easier, but you know, there's, there's athletes that, that didn't show up for their interviews. Um, we ended up rescheduling, uh, fortunately, but, um, and a lot of them, I think you know, one of the things I'm, I'm proud of around the film is, is that, um, you know, not, not all the athletes, like if you think about Sean White or I think Apollo Ono, uh, they don't even use words like depression or anxiety or, or necessarily mental health. They just talk about pressure and, and coping mechanisms. And, um, but I think it was really cathartic for them to realize that they weren't alone because they didn't generally share these emotions with each other. Mm. I, I find that a little bit surprising. I, I would love yeah. to ask you more about that. It's, I mean, it feels like if you're an Olympian, you are very aware that the only people who truly understand what you're going through are other Olympians, no matter how supportive your spouse or parents or friend group is. This is a sort of singular experience that's shared by a, a very few, a very small number of people. Why do you think it is that they don't talk to each other about struggles that they might have? Is that is it like an institutional sort of taboo to do that? Or is it a personal decision that they're all making? Well, first of all, I think it's changing. I mean, I think what we're seeing right now is kind of almost maybe a rebalancing where it's becoming really easy for certain athletes, not necessarily easy, but much easier to to use the term mental health um, publicly, let alone privately. I, I don't know that, you know, Simone or Naomi Osaka would have used that term, you know, five years ago or three years ago. Um, so I think ch- things are changing in real time. But I think that, you know, to your question, there's there's a culture of, of you know, acting like you're not vulnerable. And there's still a lot of stigma. I mean, I was interviewing a, a, a former recent NBA superstar a couple of weeks ago for a project. And we were talking about this subject and he's like, yeah, I think, you know, with the mental health thing, like you're weak, you know, if you have mental health issues, you're weak. And so it's still a pervasive stigma issue. In some ways, I think like the mental health issue equals weakness. I mean, that's something that exists outside of sports. We just lived through, obviously, you know, four years of Donald Trump. And literally that he believes that um, because Mary Trump in her book says that's what their family um, that's like one of the essential foundations of their family um, mm-hmm. is that weakness um, uh, is, you know, vulnerability or illness even. Um, and I think that especially when we, when it comes to athletes, you know, um, injuries or or if you're off your game and, and you're sort of crumbling under the pressure, you know, we love sort of the underdog story and, and the person that fights against all adversity, but... You know, if you can't um, and you can't be that superhuman person, um, we're like, oh, they're weak. But I'm like, we're, we're asking them to be superhuman and then we're calling them weak for not being for, for, for settling on human. <laughs> um, and I think that's unfair. But the other piece, too, is that, you know, some some of the mental health stuff is chemical. Some of the mental health stuff um, is something that um, is the result of trauma. I mean, we we're all living through the pandemic. How could any athlete think that there aren't going to be some sort of psychological effects that impacts their performance? Because we're all dealing with that. Do you think that the, the pandemic has helped push this conversation to the forefront as well? Because I think we're all talking about mental health more this year, even mm-hmm. in, you know, in work setting. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like how could you you not be? I mean, this this daily um, you know challenge of trying to keep yourself and your family safe, and knowing that you know hospitalization or or, or death are are possibilities. Trying to accurately evaluate the data to to keep you and your family safe. Um, it's talk about stressful. I mean, it's, yeah. it's terrible. And then and then you know, I'm here in Los Angeles. We thought we were pretty much in the clear and. Now the masks are back on indoors and with the, with the Delta variant and it's horrible. It's, it's a, a really, really challenging, horrible, stressful thing we've all been through and continue to go through. And um, yeah, I mean, how can we not be stressed out by it big time and into the vulnerability part? I mean, it's fascinating what you said about, about Trump and, and it speaks so much to, you know, the culture that he seems to have wanted to create around himself it's ridiculous. I mean, everybody gets their turn in the barrel in this life. Like nobody goes through life without, you know, adversity and, and people they love dying and getting their heart broken and having disappointments, whether it's on at the Olympics or where, wherever they work. So the, the idea that we shouldn't be vulnerable and um, talk to people about it and, and, and use medication for people that that helps. Uh, it's ridiculous. I feel like it's 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 also a trope of masculinity. It's you know there's a reason why stuff like that comes from from a guy like Trump. But we we tend to you know we we think of sports as a hyper masculine endeavor. You know even if we're watching women compete at at you know in, insane levels, we we still think of sports as as a masculine pursuit. And men in particular, we try really hard to to tell them that they can't be vulnerable, that they can't have these conversations, um, which is, I think, why Michael Phelps was kind of such a revelation when it happened. Um, he didn't just use mental health to get out of a jam because he had been found to use cannabis. He he talked about his mental health and then he kept talking about his mental health. Um, he's the spokesperson for Talkspace now, which does like uh, remote therapy, which I think is, you know, kind of blew up in the last year and a half when nobody's actually able to go into therapists offices. It's, is he, is he aware that he's sort of subverting the trope of masculinity by being like, so he's so big and strong and good at what he does in his athletic pursuits, but he's also able to talk about his own vulnerabilities and the, the help that he needs. Does he, is he aware of how revolutionary that is? Yeah, I believe he is. Um, I believe, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time with him now and, and we've been to conferences together and, you know, I interviewed him twice at length for the film and, and um, experienced the, the film you know, being acquired by HBO and, and a really powerful, impactful release last summer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this has become, along with being a, a father and a, and a husband and and other things, like a huge part of his identity. And I think it's it's been really fortuitous and, and cool that he's on the ground in Tokyo right now, mm -hmm. you know, working for, for NBC Sports because they've been able to pull him into their coverage, whether it's the Today Show yesterday or, you know, Mike Tirico in primetime and he's, he's there. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm very curious and maybe we'll know down the road kind of what's going on behind the scenes. I doubt that Simone is the only athlete dealing with this issue you know i mean <laughs> so you true. know like statistically it's she's probably far from alone and um you know I, i'm very because i know that the u.s olympic committee you know if you watch the film 
a lot of the athletes felt like the resources were, were really lacking. Yeah. And the Olympic Committee, after the film came out, uh, shortly after the film came out, and one of the things I'm I'm most proud of and, and trying to do, you know, at scale in our, our future projects is, you know, creating, a, making an impact and, and making a real difference. And they went out and raised uh, 1.5 million and hired some additional people. And, and if you've seen their messaging around Simone, they're being supportive. Um, but I think she also said that she didn't, she hasn't used, she knows the resources are there, but hasn't necessarily used them. She just wanted to grit through it. So I'd be fascinated to know what the conversations are kind of behind the scenes with uh, the, the, the Olympic committee, the gymnastics team, Simone, other athletes, Michael, it must be fascinating. What kind of changes do you want to see? Like what kinds of, after doing all of this research, like what, what do you think needs to be put in place so that athletes are, are empowered to take care of themselves in a more holistic way? Yeah, I mean, the, the experience of doing this film um, was so inspiring and powerful. And, and um, you know, I've really sort of positioned Podium Pictures, which is our, our media company, towards, you know, working to, to be the best in the world at, at, at utilizing athletes and the power of sports storytelling to change the world. You know, and, and besides mental health, we want to tackle issues like climate change and gender equity and, and, and social justice and you know, we feel like these athletes, um, and they don't necessarily have to be Michael Phelps to do it. I just have a really unique podium to to stand on. I mean, given their place in society, given their social media, not just following but engagement, um, and and some of the opportunity they have to to change, uh, you know, some of the tropes like masculinity that you described. Um, I think just first of all, talking about it, being vulnerable, is the first step. Uh, and, and but trying to build a strategy around them and some content that can inspire conversations like we're having right now and probably countless people across the world are having about mental health uh, this week. I mean, I can't even like imagine what it must be like to be at the Olympic Games and every morning waking up with people around you testing positive for COVID. There's like extremely now. serious protocols in place. I mean, I just think about that as a regular person. Like I've been sort of like afraid to die all year um, and afraid to get sick all year. I mean, I think that's all, all of us have, that's been top of our minds. I mean, imagine being in a, in the Olympic village, not able to leave. It's really strictly monitored. They're literally being GPS tracked everywhere they go um, for contact tracing. I mean, it just feels like there's a lot about what's going on over there because of the way that this Olympic games is going on that we aren't even able to really understand or see. And I think that's a whole big piece of it. Or even just like, um, Ali Raisman said yesterday, like one of the things that she thought about immediately when she was watching, um, the gymnastics, uh, qualifications was that the gymnasts didn't pr practice without any fans in the arena, like at the, at the Olympic mm -hmm. trials. And so they were not actually, there, so uh, the mental piece of it was they didn't simulate what it was going to be like, and that wasn't the best level of preparation. I mean, um, and she criticized the institution um, for, you know, kind of prioritizing selling tickets to that <laughs> to that competition to make money over really preparing the athletes the best. And it's even th small things like that that I think we don't understand about what must be going on in a lot of these athletes' minds. 
For sure. I mean, there's something pretty spooky about an empty arena. I, I had a panic yeah. attack once while, while interviewing an NFL owner in his empty stadium. It was just like too wow. much. Um, yeah, that was super scary. And it's a really interesting point that you make. The empty arenas are, are not ideal in any way. Well, and I'm sure that was a thought I didn't, I hadn't even had that thought until she said it. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And they they don't have their support system with them too. Like we're, we're, we watched Paralympians not be able to take their mom who was their assistant, you know, throughout their trip. Like, so they don't have the, the faces in the stands that they're used to being able to like look to for reassurance either. Right. Yeah. And I don't know what they have in terms of activities to do in the Olympic village. Um, but it sure seems like a lot of the, the things that maybe the athletes might have been able to do in years past to, you know, stay loose and, and get through the jitters, um, whether that was having sex with each other or, um, you know, going out on the town or things that are off the table. Right. Right. Oh, I hadn't even God thought about people, that. Two, two adults have consensual sex with each other. I mean, they always talk about that at the Olympics, like, this is the worst thing ever. And I'm like, <laughs> well, who else are they supposed to have sex with? They're an Olympian. Like, yeah, they yeah. don't get to have sex they with They don't mortal? get to party at, ever. They literally train eight hours a day for I mean, their sport for their whole lives. Most of them don't get paid anything. There has to be some benefits. You know. Listen, as long as people are old enough and consenting... I, I always found the stigma against that at the Olympic Games quite odd. I well, you know, guess. the rumor was that the, the, I don't know if it's true or not, but that the beds in the... Uh, oh, the cardboard. You know, the, yeah, yes. our cardboard and, and were specifically designed to only support the weight of one person. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That was the rumor. That's one of those things that's too good to Google. Like, I don't want to yeah. know that that's not true. <laughs> it's also, not they're Olympians. True. They can do but it on the, the ceiling but, but, fan but, if they want. But, the institution is saying it's not true, right? It's like the U. The Olympic people are saying it's not true, but <laughs> it's it's like no, that's not true. Wink, wink. Yeah, and, but it really. Another, is. I mean, the other thing I was <laughs> going to mention before is like they're also the 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 Japanese people and the the people of Tokyo don't want this Olympics there. At least many of them, from what we're seeing in the media. So another challenge is that you know they're they're they know that they're at an Olympics that are extremely unpopular with, with the, the home country. Yeah, that has to be really difficult. I actually like I'm I'm thinking about it as like the Olympics during a pandemic is really hard. But when you break it down into all of these different categories, yeah, it, this seems like an impossible setup. They don't have the ability to blow off steam. They don't have their friends and family in the stands. They don't have anybody in the stands. They're not welcome in the country that they're hosted by. This is an impossible set of circumstances to ask somebody to perform beyond normal human ability. It's impossible circumstances to ask us to to, to perform at human ability. Um, but it, this obviously isn't just a pandemic issue. Like the Olympics have had a hard time with mental health for a long time. So hopefully this conversation um, really dramatically changes the next Olympics that we see. Are you hopeful? Yeah, well, the next Olympics are just um, this coming February, so they'll they'll be coming at us. They'll be coming at us fast, and and we have the LA twenty twenty eight Olympics, you know, just down the road as well. I mean, the Olympics are definitely changing as the world is changing, and and the media landscape is changing. And I mean, how many different platforms do you have to have to be able to watch what you want to watch? You know, 
at these Olympics, it's, it's tricky. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the, 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 the Olympics generate billions of dollars. I think the biggest revenue stream is from TV, the TV rights and NBC is the biggest player in that world. And, you know, in order for, for this machine to, to keep rolling, they needed to stage these Olympics. And as soon as the, the TV cameras went on, the, the, the money changed hands. Um, so, you know, they're highly incentivized to stage these Olympics the best they could. They would have done it last summer if there was any, any way they could have. Um, and so, look, I think everybody's probably just glad to, to get through these. And, and hopefully we'll see. Um, I think track and field is starting maybe today. We'll see some some great competition. And, and I mean, it'll be fascinating to see with the Simone story kind of how it plays out, because I believe maybe you guys know better than I, I think there were like three events maybe. And the first one she's, you know, pulled out of in the middle, essentially the second one was supposed to be Thursday. It's so confusing mm-hmm. with the time change mm-hmm. yeah. and she pulled out of that. And then I think there's a third one on Sunday yeah, I mean, individual if she events. Competes on Sunday and wins the gold medal. What a story that would be! I had the or thought. Or she might just not. You know, yesterday. Yeah, yeah I had the thought yeah. yesterday. I was like, what if she just decides, like, well, I'll do beam. <laughs> you know, right, like, right, I, 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 yeah. I I just oh, want to say to thank break? you. For, we do. We're we're running up on that hard break where we can't continue the conversations we would like to continue having. So we'll <laughs> just have to have you back when we talk about the Olympics again in February. Brett Rapkin, director <laughs> of The Weight of Gold. You can watch that on HBO Max. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And this segment is sponsored by uh, Cardboard Beds. <laughs> for, for all of your intimate needs, Cardboard Beds. <laughs> thank you, Brett. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.